0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Woods from Early Adopter Research, and today we're going to do another episode of the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast. I'm very happy that I have Monty Zwiebin, the CEO and co-founder of Splice Machine, with me today. Say hello, Monty. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Now, Monty has been an observer, as I have been, of the Hadoop ecosystem for quite some time. Splice Machine is a database with some interesting properties. It's a distributed SQL database, but it's also a database that is able to handle transactional workloads and also analytical workloads at scale at the same time. And given that many of those types of workloads were handled, uh, at least the analytical ones on Hadoop, uh, Monty's been paying quite close attention to what's been happening to Hadoop, and, and the recent developments are are quite interesting to him and to me. So, what we're going to talk about today is what has gone on in the Hadoop ecosystem and why is Hadoop seem to be fading so fast? I would say that Hadoop's uh, demise may not be uh, we not we we may not be able to declare Hadoop's demise right now, but we certainly can talk about the the negative. Uh, uh, Impact that a lot of news recently has had on the Hadoop ecosystem What's interesting to me is not the company news, but really the product analysis And that's what Monty is going to talk about today. What we're going to try to do is look at what Hadoop promised to be and then what it actually delivered and then why didn't that take hold as much as it needed to make a thriving and successful you know category uh, so Monty, does this sound like a good topic
1: for you? I love it. <laughs> it's a great topic.
0: Now, and, and I also want you to to, to let me know about, the, you had a recent funding announcement for Splice Machine, so why don't you tell me what happened with that and then we'll start a discussion.
1: Sure, fantastic. Yeah, we infused a, a, another round of capital to grow Splice Machine um, from its early stages of building this data platform that you talked about and we'll talk more about in our podcast today to growing our go-to-market and bringing this to um, the marketplace globally. Um, The leader of this particular round is um, a pretty well-known figure in the data spaces. It's Ray Lane from GPV Ventures. And Ray used to be the president and coo of oracle so it's great to have ray on our board and counseling us on our strategy and being part of the spice machine journey and in addition to having that leadership uh, we were very excited to have a strategic partner participate in this round and a strategic partner who's critical for our go-to-market and that was accenture ventures and today Um, Accenture Ventures, through their data practice and their software engineering practice, are taking Spice Machine to Market to their clients as a modern data platform for companies to modernize their applications with both enriched data as well as artificial intelligence. And so having Accenture be not just a partner but an investor really helps us align our goals and bring us to market globally.
0: And, you know, that seems really interesting because there's been a trend of large companies who do a lot of consulting buying up assets that are related to data infrastructure. I think Hitachi Vantara bought up Pentaho, uh, uh, the HCL bought up Actian, and now Accenture, while they didn't buy up uh, a splice machine, they obviously created a strategic relationship with you. So... Now let's get to the Hadoop ecosystem. Now I've been writing about Hadoop since it arrived on the scene. And it's really interesting to me because Hadoop always had some good things going for it and also had some challenges. Um, I'm going to give you a summary of what I think happened in the Hadoop ecosystem. And then I'd like you to talk about your uh, three points that you wanted to make. And those three points that we'll get to later was schema on read was a mistake, that Hadoop's complexity and duct tape compute engines were a problem, and that the wrong focus was at the center of the ecosystem, the data lake versus the application. Mm-hmm. But let me do a scene setter first before we get into that. Now, Hadoop arose out of the need to process huge amounts of data. Uh, Google had been doing it and wrote, wrote a paper about an architecture called MapReduce that could be very successful in to process large amounts of data. And at the people at Yahoo, Doug Cutting and others, you know, created this uh, infrastructure uh, called Hadoop to enable large amounts of data to be processed. Now initially the use case was the indexing of the web, but quickly as more and more data sources became available, it became clear that lots of other people had this big data problem as it became to be known. And Hadoop was an open source platform that allowed you to handle it. Now, what it did most valuably at first was it created a file system that was much cheaper than any other method. The Hadoop file system allowed you to store massive amounts of data using commodity hardware. And that victory was substantial and really was important. Then on top of it, they created uh, various generations of uh, programming environments, that allowed you to write programs that would then sift through uh, the all of the data in parallel using the, the map reduce paradigm where you would sift through and, and process a bunch of stuff and get an intermediate result, and then you would then reduce it into the final result. And it turned out that in the ad tech world or in finance or in lots of other places, there was a real need to process large amounts of data and distill it, and often there would be cascading pipelines of workloads that would be involved in in sifting through a huge amount of data and creating you know result sets that, that would be used in more traditional ways now what was the problem well the problem you know for engineering rich organizations wasn't you know really a big deal netflix was able to use it and created all sorts of plumbing around it to make it more easily uh, easy to use such as their genie system and uh you know, other, you know, you know, large places with lots of engineering resources were able to make it work and do important applications. And uh, the, uh, uh, the problem, though, from a mass market enterprise uptake point of view was that MapReduce as a programming paradigm wasn't really that easy to use. Then they, they, they put yarn on top of it, which made it a little bit better, a little bit more abstract, but still it was a real programmer's tool. And it really wasn't built as a application development environment. It was built as a data storage and data processing environment. And then when Spark came along, which was built as an application environment, a lot of the focus on big data for applications, you know, went to Spark. Now, at the same time, you know, there was another problem, which was that the Hadoop ecosystem, unlike almost any other open source ecosystem, had three major players surrounding the the, um, open source project. Now, it's a tremendous tribute to the uh, Apache ecosystem that they were able to kind of work together and have Cloudera, which was the earliest and best funded, and Hortonworks uh, uh, and MapR all working on the open source uh, uh, project to some extent and cooperating but also competing to create a productized Hadoop distribution and also add uh, additional functionality that could be um, uh, monetized. Now, what happened of course, was that Hortonworks went public and their their business performance wasn't closed in glory. Uh, Cloudera uh, got the huge investment from uh, Intel and then eventually went public. Uh, uh, MapR uh, uh, did never went public. Uh, Eventually Cloudera and Hortonworks merged and MapR just recently wasn't able to get funding. And the uptake of this was really retarded for a couple of reasons. One was that the cloud rose up and the need for the Hadoop file system to store big data became much less urgent because you could store all that data at scale in the cloud. And then lots and lots of other programming engines could then process the data, whether it was in HDFS or whether whether it was in the cloud. And the idea of using MapR or Yarn as an application development environment became less and less attractive, especially when Spark was rising up. And if you were going to choose to create an application in Spark or in Hadoop, a lot of people chose Spark. And so, and and, and here we sit right now with lots of bad financial news coming out around the. Uh, the Hadoop, uh, uh, the the combined Cloudera and HortonWorks, uh, you know, lots of bad, you know, corporate news in terms of executives leaving. Uh, MapR's obviously is, it was a Hadoop associated company that wasn't able to get uh, continued funding, and so that seems to be the story of Hadoop up till now. Is there anything you'd like to do to add to that story or, or, or sharpen a few of the points?
1: You know, the thing to accentuate about what you said about MapReduce is. That before MapReduce, it was extremely difficult to get hundreds or thousands of computers to work together. there were certainly developers who can do thread programming on a few CPUs to get some parallel processing, but massively parallel processing was reserved for PhDs and masters in distributed systems
0: and we- there was there was also a, a- Previous wave of startups that were all focused on grid computing mm-hmm. that really didn't find purchase uh, to a significant degree
1: as well. Right. They, they didn't create, it's exactly right. There were companies like Thinking Machines and MassPar um, that were the companies trying to crack the nut on massively parallel processing. The beauty of MapReduce was that. It allowed you to abstract away from getting multiple computers to work together, dealing with the age old issues of distributed systems, including deadlock and live lock, and b- being able to deal with failures in a resilient way, especially when dealing with commodity hardware. When that first generation of companies that you just mentioned, Dan, were probably dealing with much higher-end hardware. Here we are tr- trying to string together many PCs or low-end servers um, to try to, um, you know, create this massively parallel architecture. MapReduce took all of those details away so that the average developer can actually perform massively parallelized computation in a way that they could never do that before, but As you said, MapReduce and even the later evolutions like Hive and Spark still required you to think about parallelism in um, ways that were overly complex for, um, I think, a different population of people to adopt. And that's the IT organizations. Engineers and developers whose job it is to write code every day, they were able to use this, but it wasn't really architected or or usable in an easy way by IT people whose job is essentially to operate these kinds of engines. And I think
0: that what you're pointing out is that the productization of Hadoop never really was completed. Um, You know, it it always was a programmer's toolkit. And and a lot of the people who used it used simplifies methods of programming against it. Like uh, the uh, sync sort had a very good way of being able to define workloads in their abstract, you know, DMX programming language and then execute them on Hadoop. And then that protected you from, you know, any version uh, changes underneath it. Or... Cascading, which was a uh, uh, an application generation system, also was able to you know you were able to define a, a, an yeah. application and then and then deploy it on Hadoop or Cascalog, uh, uh, you know the, which was a fascinating uh, uh, you know system that combined aspects of of data lo- of of, of uh, a data log and cascading. But but all of those were
1: programmers toolkits, and it showed and what that I'm going to say if this isn't about productization, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this isn't about productization. In my view, this I think Hadoop was extremely well productized in many ways. But what it is 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 really understanding what is the constituency or audience for that product. Well, that's the, I guess that's what that's the dimension of
0: productization I'm talking about. It was a product for programmers. It wasn't exactly. a product for 100%. enterprise. That's that's what I mean.
1: Hundred percent. Facebook and and Netflix and uh, my old company that I was chairman of and uh, and also CEO of for uh, a while called Rocket Fuel. We used Hadoop intimately and used it at grand scale to produce machine learning, but we had engineers who were extremely experienced developers using it. And so what we did at Spice Machine, when we started the company years ago, is realize this fact. And without getting into Spice Machine yet, and just talking about the Hadoop market for a second, this whole point that we're talking about was really the reason why I started our company. It was to democratize this technology, And get it in the hands of IT and application developers that may not be experienced with distributed systems. And that was the whole point of it, because I was enamored with the power, but I was aware of the complexity. Okay, so now let's go
0: and talk about the three uh, points that you think explain the challenge and the, the reason that Hadoop didn't t- have as, as strong uptake. The first one was uh, that you felt that schema on read was a mistake. Now schema on read is the idea that you have a bunch of data and that you form a schema closer to the time of use, and you don't have to have the schema defined when you store the data. Now there was uh, somebody from uh, a really uh, entertaining uh, speaker from uh, the uh, company that's productizing uh, uh, Kafka said in a lecture that schema on read was a a fraud perpetrated (laughs) on developers by database administrators. (laughs) But anyway, why do you see schema on read as being a mistake, and how would you explain what it is?
1: Well, um, first, schema on read was a reaction to the um, lack of agility that relational databases at the time when Hadoop and scale-out architectures were emerging, um, that at that time, the relational database was perceived as being not very agile or performant. And the reason that it was perceived that way is that the applications that were uh, powered by relational databases you know were difficult to get to scale on the new modern data sources that were coming into the, the marketplace and people reacted and threw the baby out with the bathwater and what i mean with that by that is that They said, well, because relational databases required us to think hard about our data ahead of time and organize the data into tables whose columns were typed, this made it very difficult for us to change our applications. And because these new data sources were coming into the marketplace quickly, we need to change a lot. And moreover, these new data sources were um, quite voluminous. You know, we always talk about the three Vs, volume of data, velocity of data, variety of data. And that's what we're talking about here. And, And therefore, this volume was so high, standard relational databases won't work for us. So we're gonna move. We're gonna move off of them, and we're gonna move on to these new architectures. And what the market, place said was yeah on these new architectures we have these really cool things that are key value stores or object stores and you could put anything in there and moreover these things are scale out architectures meaning the data is distributed across many different servers so you're not constrained by centralized databases. and so this new notion came into place, that there's a new architecture. And what followed, to answer your question, was this notion that since these were very flexible architectures, where you can store anything in key value stores, you can store anything in object stores, there's no rigor to them. This notion of schema on read came into play to provide the flexibility of getting data digitized. Schema on read means that you take data and you just store it as quickly as you possibly can from its source. And you don't spend a lot of time trying to curate it or organize it and structure it. You let the consumers of the data, the application developers who are going to use the data, worry about that. And they'll be the ones who are reading the data. They're the ones that'll put that data into a structured schema. Well, this was a huge mistake. And so, it- so, so, um, like, let's just
0: talk about you know, let's let's just be fair about this. It was, um, it was uh, a mistake because the idea was you could think that in some way you you could actually do without this work up front. Is that the idea? Yep.
1: Yeah. And 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 that um you know you would be able to ubiquitously use this data um for multiple purposes if you just store stored it in raw form on one of these scale out architectures. And I think it was a specious argument. And and the 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 reason is Especially at volume, that you have to think hard about how you represent your data for any application. That's true for a standard um, application that might be a customer interaction type of application or um, just some business application. It's especially true for machine learning applications. Representation of data is critical and when you did schema on read the result was a large data swamp versus a data lake the data was voluminous it became available in a central repository and stored it was somewhat successful as an IT project meaning a CIO or a CDO or an IT team could say, we succeeded in building our data lake. Why? Because they were able to get multiple sources of data in real time, potentially, in many cases, stored onto a centralized data um, system, typically a file system, and get it in one place. And so here I before see. that can happen.
0: I see. So the idea here is that the the illusion of schema on read allowed you to create a data lake of some sort. At first, it probably worked, but then when it, when it came to scale, uh, uh, the, you, you didn't, it did not really scale very elegantly. And this is where you had the sort of lack of productization. The kind of lack of productization that's been, that's been addressed by companies like Dremio or uh, Podium Data or a variety of the other companies that came in and said, look, we'll provide that structure that's missing to that large big data storage.
1: And they, they, they let you get at data from multiple sources and federate a query across many sources, but they don't solve the problem of structure. Somebody has to structure that data in some way. I I like to view this problem as um, the data centralization, the creation, or or the enablement of the enterprise, enterprise to leverage data has two sides of the coin. It has a supply side, meaning you have to get the data and supply it to some location. And then there's the demand side. Somebody has to use the data the data lake projects that relied on schema on read were half successful because they succeeded in supplying the data. Got it. Schema on read didn't make it very usable. And that was the issue. That was the issue. Got it. And so now the second,
0: so the, the the second uh, problem that you said that helped uh, stop Hadoop and, 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 and all of these problems, I think, uh, were the cause of the fact that, like, uh, when you would see Hortonworks talking in its, in its earnings calls, it would say, We sold this many new customers, and then we're expecting expansion from the existing customers we had. You know, we have this many cores per customer, and we think that that number will go up by 2x or 3x. And that's what never happened. And what you're explaining is why that multiplier of, of, of usage never took place. Now, right. the next the next problem you said was Hadoop complexity, you know, uh, and, and the duct tape compute engines. Right. Um, and now this, of course, you know, in one sense, you're talking about the kind of uh, NASCAR uh, slides of all of the different projects that surrounded Hadoop. Now, and, and in one sense, that's good because, you know, you've got a lot of energy going into the, to the ecosystem. But in another sense, it's bad. So what was the problem with the Hadoop complexity of the ecosystem?
1: Right. Now, um, many pundits on Wall Street and in the press and even self-declared by the Hadoop um, companies and leaders of the Hadoop, um, you know, sort of ecosystem claim that that symptom of follow-on orders and expansion in accounts didn't happen because of the cloud and that the Hadoop companies miss the cloud and everyone's going to the cloud. But this particular point that I'm going to make now, I think is also a very real symptom that will affect the cloud adopters of Hadoop-based systems. So all of the people who are rushing from an on-prem implementation of Hadoop that was complex to a managed implementation of Hadoop in the cloud, they will remove the operational complexity of using of Hadoop per se, the operational complexity. But what they won't be able to remove is the complexity of constructing applications. And the duct tape that you alluded to, is the duct tape necessary to build these so-called lambda architectures? Um, a lambda architecture is a term utilized by people in the community that is essentially a architecture that glues together an operational data platform for running an application in real time. That tends to be a key value store. Examples are Cassandra and HBase, Dynamo on Amazon, CosmoDB on Microsoft. There's a whole host of them. They duct tape that to large batch processing engines that do analytical processing. Those are systems like, um, I'd say, Hive and Spark, um, and of course, back in the day, MapReduce and they connect that up to streaming systems like Kafka, and then somewhere in this architecture is a machine learning library, usually, or data science workbench. And in the more modern systems, that wasn't officially part of the old Lambda architecture per se, but now a data science workbench is becoming um, more available. And the problem is, you need developers to literally connect these different data platforms together and keep the data consistent for all these different moving pieces. And this is true on premise. This is true in the cloud. This is essentially a big problem. Got meta, it. So, so one, one,
0: one, so one um, implication of what you're saying is that even though Amazon has a cloud instance of Hadoop in Elastic MapReduce. It still suffers from that complexity, and you're you're suggesting that it will lose out to computing engines that are easier to program in and easier to manage.
1: There are a number of of um, software companies that are pre integrating these computational engines in various ways. We obviously think we do it in a very special way, but there are a number of companies that are forming architectures for application development of very advanced applications that make it easier than having to do this plumbing yourself. I like to use a metaphor of a car. When we need to go somewhere, we need to either buy or rent a vehicle to go somewhere. We don't go out and find a fuel injector, suspension system, a bunch of tires and an engine, and assemble them ourselves. Now, there is somebody who does that for us, and we get the tool that we need to accomplish the task. We're going to experience, in the next few years, the same thing happening in the distributed computing space. We'll see this complexity go away, and there'll be uh, providers of software engines that put the right pieces together to accomplish particular tasks. And that complexity of the duct tape of putting together analytical processing, operational processing or transactional processing, along with machine learning processing and streaming processing is a good example of the componentry you need to really make an intelligent application and those pieces are going to start to come together in a much more. Right. way.
0: Well, and to, but, and to, but be fair to MapR, that's what they were doing with their data fabric vision was knitting together, you know, the, 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 the ability to search data, the ability to handle streams, the ability to, to handle data from a variety of different repositories, all, you know, in a, in, inside a, a fabric that then had properties like a global namespace and a, um, uh, a, an ability to replicate you know across geographies and things like that so you're you're saying that that direction is a good direction you know to to make to make all the plumbing to create high performance advanced ml applications is the right is the right direction
1: I definitely think that's the right direction i I believe that there is a you know faster approach than i think that was still loosely coupled I think there's even a more sign significantly coupled environment that um, will provide that capability our strategy was to try to use the lingua franca of i.t remember my goal and mission of of starting our company was to democratize this incredible power of distributed processing that started with MapReduce and now is 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 actually um, delivered across many engines that we're talking about um, and so what that lingua franca is, is, is SQL. And I think that there's probably trillions, if not more lines of code out there written in SQL. Right. And, and if you can really capture that environment that everyone knows, then I think you're on the road to actually delivering on something that's usable. Right. By, organizations right and and the
0: evidence and and the evidence that that's true is the success of companies like snowflake who said we're going all in on SQL, but we're gonna do it in the cloud you know and and they found a lot of traction basically Uh,
1: absolutely and and they focused they focused on a different area than our vision they focused on analytics and data warehousing and that's a fantastic opportunity to offload Workloads from Teradata or from Exadata onto a very elastic cloud-based platform to do analytics And you can think of our mission of trying to do that for modern applications that uh, And and
0: now now let's go to the third problem which was the idea of the wrong focus that they the idea of the Hadoop ecosystem They focused on the data lake versus the application
1: yeah, excellent no. segue. So e- so, excellent so, segue.
0: so, so, how would you define, I mean, how would you tell that story? And what, I mean, I tell briefly what they did, but then how could they have done something different?
1: In retrospect, I, I, uh, I see what's happened over the last five years as being a really interesting, um, you know, sort of groupthink in our marketplace. So with this, new distributed file system that allowed you to have cheap storage of grand volumes of data, there emerged this massive thrust to get all the data in one place and form the quote unquote data lake. And schema unread, like we talked about earlier, accentuated this or exacerbated this This particular thrust. And what happened was the two sides of the coin I talked about earlier the supply of data to a central location versus the demand of data and use of data was very bifurcated. And everyone jumped on the bandwagon of creating that central repository of data, that supply side. And what unfortunately happened is that there were data experts at the table but the people who run the business from an it perspective and their sponsors on the line of business side were sort of arm's length distance from this particular data lake initiative i was talking to one cio just the other day in the healthcare arena and they said specifically about a data lake initiative. We went about this in a build it and they will come manner. We will build the central repository of data across all of their systems, whether that was patients and claims and so forth. And all of the um, application developers who need that data will come and use it. And that didn't happen because The data lake was so hard to use for all the reasons we just talked about. The data wasn't curated because the schema unread. The data was complex to get at for the different workloads because of the different computational engines that we just talked about. And so you ended up with this repository. Now, I'm offering a different perspective. And that perspective, is don't think about the supply of data, think about the demand of data, and start with a line of business, start with the IT group that's in charge of, let's say, a legacy application that might serve that line of business, and ask oneself, how could this legacy application be modernized with new data sources? How can it be enriched? And even better, how can you incorporate perhaps machine learning models into that existing application to make it more intelligent so that it's using that data in an experiential way to learn from the past so that it can make predictions of the future and actually be more informed, more dynamic and more adaptive to the changing conditions of that particular application. In
0: right, the way, so, so the idea was that it, it's as if you tried to say, well, everybody has data warehouses, we're gonna build a new type of data warehouses, and it's gonna be so great that a bunch of people will use it for applications, and that second thing never happened. Exactly. It's, got it,
1: okay. And if you start with the app, and you start asking, what data does it need to take it to the next level? And what data does it need to incorporate AI? Now you're focused. Okay. You're focused on sourcing the right data in the right form, not schema un- unread anymore, right? You're going to say, let me get this data in a form that this app needs it and be able to incorporate the proper machine learning models. Okay,
0: Good. Uh, Now, I have a a couple of questions about splice machine strategy going forward. Yep. Now, if you look at, uh, uh, you know, your strategy from the beginning, it's been very similar in one respect to another very large company that has had the same vision uh, for combining analytics and transactional processing. And that's SAP with their SAP HANA infrastructure. The whole idea of HANA was to do the same thing. Let's create an in-memory database that is so powerful that it can be a transactional database and use SQL and whatever it needs to be. But also, it can be accessed in, in uh, uh, as an analytical database at the same time. And then if you are able to do that, then you don't have to do a bunch of the transformations that you would have to do. Uh, when you created data into a data warehouse, you could actually have those transformations from the transactional form of the data happen in the query uh, because the, every, the processing was fast enough. And so then you would get a really powerful combination, which was the transactional processing and the, anal- the transactional data and the analytical processing you know, in a real-time way. Now, in many ways, you're talking about the same thing with splice Machine. You're, how would you how would you describe what you're doing as the same and and as different to what SAP HANA is doing?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I'll even throw Oracle Exadata into the mix. Right, these two very impressive engineering efforts are groups that we love to be associated with because we have similar ambitions. We our ambitions are to grant is to provide grand scale to the application developers of the universe and to provide um, a SQL environment that they're used to, provide interconnectivity to all of the BI tools in the world and all of the ETL tools in the world, and of course to all of the developer environments that wrap SQL like object to relational mapping systems and provide this new capability to um, essentially integrate or unify analytical processing and transactional processing. We have very similar goals, but where we fundamentally differ is on approach. Both Oracle and SAP looked at this as an engineering problem to be solved in an integration of both software and hardware. And if you look at the infrastructure required for HANA and for Exadata, these are what are called scale up systems. They are not systems with which you're taking inexpensive multiple servers that have a, um, a proclivity to fail all together because of the inexpensiveness and glue these together to create grand scale that's very resilient, that that scale out architecture, the modern architecture that began with MapReduce that we talked about, is an extremely cost effective solution. Whereas the scale up solutions probably have one or two more zeros on their total cost of ownership. They're very performant, they're extremely impressive engineered um, pieces of work, but they, on a total cost of ownership perspective, are a completely different equation. And moreover, neither one of these scale up architectures are built on the open source components that the data science community would like to use in their data science um, on an everyday basis. Whereas um, on the splice machine scale out architecture, it has all of the componentry we've been talking about, Spark, Hadoop, um, key value stores, and streaming technologies, all in splice machine, native to splice machine, integrated together with a transactional layer that provides the same what we call ACID properties that say and HANA have, but it's on the open source technologies. So that if I were to deploy an application in a company, who's got a bunch of data scientists, who like to work in Python or in Spark and use particular machine learning libraries, that is native to Splice, but the scale up architectures don't provide that. So summarizing, Scale up is way more expensive than scale out. We both try to integrate analytical and transactional processing. And moreover, those proprietary scale up architectures don't provide the open source standards for data science.
0: Now, but is the idea of Splice Machine that you would take a existing transactional application and use Splice Machine as the database for it so that then you could get all the analytical processing? Like, you're not probably able to do this, but the, the most extreme example of this would be to take an SAP ERP system and use Splice Machine as the database so that now all of the data in that uh, SAP ERP system would be available for the analytic processing you're talking about. Now, it, it, I, it doesn't sound like you're, that's the strategy. This sounds like the strategy is that net new or custom transactional applications would be built on Splice Machine, and then you would have that analytical processing come along with it?
1: Well, it's a great question, and it is our punchline, and it is the fundamental difference of where we are in the marketplace and how are we gonna market with Accenture and others. And that is the, the following. We do indeed focus on legacy and custom applications that exist today, and may be overlooked in the digital transformation because they're kind of locked in old technologies. And we enable those applications to literally become data rich and intelligent. We probably in the market, as far as I know, are the only distributed SQL platform that would allow an existing application to run on it transactionally and to um, allow an in database machine learning component. So, yes, we modernize existing applications.
0: And this is different than something like Connectica, where they do have the, the combination of the database and the in database machine learning, but it's only for analytics, it's not That's for exactly the transactional right. side. That's now, exactly. and, so, and so, like, at some point, you'll 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 start out doing these custom high-value applications of, of the sort that Accenture probably builds a lot. So it makes sense that they would want to have you as a, a as a option and 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 have you as a healthy option for them. But it's also true that maybe someday you know a simpler application, something like a Marketo, you know, could run on you because it doesn't make nearly as 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 difficult demands on the database as something like an ERP system does. Well, so, I,
1: think the, I think the ERP system is great is a great opportunity, but of course, an SAP I don't think would certify um, a a splice machine um, database, but that's not out of the question, and we've had conversations about that over the years. Um, and I, I, I would envision at some point in the future that may indeed happen. But, got her. But there are existing uh, packaged application companies who are looking to support. Splice Machine as one of the databases that they might support or to use it for their SaaS version of their application. Um, But you know, there are just so many custom applications out there that are SQL applications that would benefit greatly. And we have a few great examples of this. Like um, one credit card company had a customer service application for dispute resolution, where you are um, creating cases where you don't recognize a particular transaction, you're asking the credit card company and the merchant bank that issued you your card to investigate this particular issue. Um, The credit card company went through a digital transformation trying to reduce the amount of days that are necessary to uh, essentially resolve these cases. And in order to do this, they didn't want to have to change their application their application was already on an existing very well known relational database management system. And what they wanted to do is use that application. But now in order to reduce the dispute resolution cycle times to very small amounts of days, they needed to have orders of magnitude more data um, in their database, but the relational database couldn't handle it. So, Splice Machine today is essentially replaced the relational database management system. They've migrated the app. And every time you swipe a credit card today, it streams onto Splice Machine seconds after and is available for any merchant bank or consumer um, or for the credit card company to access in milliseconds for years of transactions rather than just weeks of transactions. And that kind of new approach on old software is really the epitome of what we're in the market doing. We're working with an insurance company in Europe who has a very large ERP for insurance, um, specifically dealing with client management and claims processing and policy management. And they want the ability to be agile in the cloud and to be able to be hybrid on any cloud and they too have a db2 for example um, powered application well got it we'll be able to migrate them to splice machine and allow them to run this in new territories around the world and be able to open up new territories in the cloud without having to open up new data centers but The real power comes from the fact that now you have an ability to put intelligence. And this is a great story for you. This particular company has a fantastic machine learning group who's built machine learning models for claim fraud. And they have proven that their predictive accuracy on these um, scores for fraud are better than the majority of any of the human analysts in the company. But the fraud systems are not in production because they are disconnected from the operational system. And the time it takes to ETL the claim and policy information over to the lab where the models are create right. exactly. a bit of latency. And so they can't put this, the, this scoring system into place because the scores are stale. But when Splice Machine is powering the real-time operational application, those existing machine learning models will be able to be placed real-time into the fabric of the real-time engine, delivering on real-time fraud detection and delivering on the promise of this integrated architecture. And so that's the power of migrating legacy applications to a Splice Machine framework that gives you scale, it gives you agility of being in any cloud or on-premise environment, and it gives you the in-memory and in-database machine learning capabilities right in the fabric of the operational application.
0: Okay, so my last question is one about larger corporate strategy for Splice Machine, and that is this if you're going to focus on the application and if you're going to try to do a platform sale, you know, you're, you're basically selling a piece of infrastructure that then somebody has to use to create the value that you're claiming. And another, another way that I've seen this done is if somebody says a very powerful platform and one that's innovative and, and, and unusual in its shape, the way that splice machine is, Instead of trying to sell the platform, why not try to sell actual applications that show the power of the platform? And a company in Canada called ThoughtWire has been doing this with a very powerful semantic uh, uh, powered graph database. And they've got two applications, one for commercial real estate and one for uh, healthcare. And so instead of trying to sell the platform, which is like, who's ever heard of a semantically powered graph database application platform? No, I mean, it's it's been up, but it's not not like, it's not nearly as understood as SQL. Um, Why wouldn't you try to actually, you know, speed the sales cycle and have an application be the arrow point of your go to market?
1: Well, you're you're very insightful. Um, There is no doubt As we evolve, there will be a set of reference applications that we and uh, our customers and our partners like Accenture will develop. We'll package these as reference applications that are good starting points for application development. And over time, they will become full-fledged applications. But as a small company, we crawl, walk, run. As an example, one of the reference applications we offer today is one that was built between us and Accenture. And that is an order promising application that fits on top of SAP and enables you to have a real-time selling tool for a sales organization to assemble complex orders on the fly with your customers side by side and getting real-time order promising dates, sometimes called available to promise, Um, on a line item by line item basis, to be able to provide that customer with the answer to the question they always have, which is, this is a great order, can I get it when I need it? And that order promising capability requires a voluminous amount of inventory availability information and parallel processing for availability computations. And that Integrated to SAP is a very powerful application, which also has a machine learning component on it, which will learn over time the lead times for orders that may be very contextual to that order, (coughs) whether that's weather data or bill of materials data, supplier data that may um, take your expected lead time of shipping from a distribution center or a manufacturing plant to the customer from you know, what was two days, and then it becomes 10 days because of some condition that it exists, being able to learn those conditions and make those promises on the fly. This kind of reference application for smart order promising is a great example of the evolution that we will have from being just a distributed SQL platform within database machine learning having reference applications on top of it but like you said everyone knows SQL so I think that there is a very viable and very um, easy to access marketplace for the database community but moving up the stack and delivering on reference applications sold to the line of business as well as to the application owners and IT is definitely in the evolutionary track for Spice Machine as we move forward. And the auto Promising app is one great example of that. And you'll see others for fraud, preventive maintenance, and others like that. Customer 360, Know Your Customer, recommendation engines. These are the kinds of smart applications that will emerge from us as we um, work with our clients and deliver on them and find that commonality across all of these implementations that need to be standardized.
0: Got it. So the idea is, the answer is, yes, you do believe that applications, especially reference applications in your situation, are a very good way of going to market because it does, you know, accelerate the understanding and uptake. Uh, And that, uh, but but no, you're not going to create your own productized versions. You're just going to create reference applications. And I assume that your partners like Accenture will probably create their own reference applications that they bring as assets.
1: Uh, yes, I think we'll do it together quite a bit, and I'm sure they'll build their own as well. Excellent.
0: Well, Monty, this was super fun, and uh, we got a lot covered. Um, it's a very lengthy podcast, and we'll, what we should do is harvest it for ideas and, and other content, and let's talk about that later, but thank you so much for spending so much time with me. Um, uh, this has been a great time, and again, this has been the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast from Early Adopter Research, which you can find at earlyadopter.com. My name is Dan Woods. I am the CEO and founder of Early Adopter Research. And thank you very much to Monty. Thank
1: you, Dan. I really enjoyed the conversation.